Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. When we look at past conflicts and old wars, it's all too easy to think of states and empires moving as some kind of monolithic unit. History books like to talk about America doing this, or the British Empire doing that, or America entering the war, China entering a war, Japan entering a war, as if all of those things, all of those states, are singular, discrete units. And the casual observer could be forgiven for thinking that all of the people and all of the factions within those states, empires, militaries, etc., moved in a single, uniform way, that they were of one mind and totally coordinated. But that's never, ever the case. States, empires, political parties, and other groups always have fractures and factions inside of them. There's nearly always dissenters, or people who are not going along with the conventional wisdom. And... We also like to assume that people in the past were of one mind about certain issues, that everyone subscribed to a given belief about something like slavery being okay, or American expansionism and imperialism being okay, because those ideas and those conventions were just of the time and common at the time, but again, there were always dissenters. For instance, most reasonable people now look at the Mexican-American War of 1846 and find that it's basically inexcusable. It's really just an imperialistic war of territorial expansion on the part of the United States, and I think that's why a lot of Americans, well, don't like talking about it very much. We like to talk about the American Revolution, because we stick it to England. Uh, We like to talk about the Civil War. One of those sides was good. We were fighting against slavery. World War One, World War Two, World War Two. We get to be on the good side. World War One, there were no good. Anyways, you get the idea. You get what I'm saying. We skip over the Mexican-American War because it's not a good look for us. It was a land grab to create more slave states, and it's basically impossible to feel good about America's crusade to invade its neighbor. And the thing is. People knew that at the time. I want to read you the memoirs of an American lieutenant who was in that war. He wrote, quote, Generally the officers of the army were indifferent whether the annexation was consummated or not, but not so for all of them. For myself, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day regard the war, which resulted, as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It was an instance of a republic following the bad example of European monarchies in not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territory, And that's not all. That American lieutenant goes on saying that the whole affair of bringing Texas into the Union and expanding American territory south of the Mason-Dixon line wasn't just about American expansion, but also the worst kind of American expansion, the kind that would create more slave states. That lieutenant continues, quote, 
Texas was originally a state belonging to the Republic of Mexico. An empire and territory, it had but a very sparse population until settled by Americans who had received authority from Mexico to colonize. These colonists paid very little attention to the supreme government and introduced slavery into the state almost from the start. Though the Constitution of Mexico did not, nor does it now, sanction that institution. Soon they set up an independent government of their own, and war existed between Texas and Mexico, in name from that time until 1836, when active hostilities very nearly ceased upon the capture of Santa Ana, the Mexican president. Before long, however, the same people, who with the prohibition of Mexico had colonized Texas and afterwards set up slavery there, and then seceded as soon as they felt strong enough to do so, offered themselves and the state to the United States, and in 1845 their offer was accepted. The occupation, separation, and annexation were, from the inception of the movement to its final consummation, a conspiracy to acquire territory out of which slave states might be formed for the American Union. Unquote. Now, lest you think that was written by some radical anti-imperialist with an axe to grind, that young lieutenant's name was Ulysses S. Grant. And, like many other people in the 1840s and onward, he knew very well that the war that he fought was one fought for terrible reasons, and it left a bad taste in his mouth. Not a bad enough taste for him to quit the American army and never fight in it, but Still, he knew damn well what was going on, what he was doing, and what the United States was about. But there were some members of the American armed forces who went a bit further than Lieutenant and later General and later President Ulysses S. Grant. Grant wrote about his displeasure. Today, on St. Patrick's Day, I want to tell you about a group of dissenters who did far more than just take up a pen— they took up guns, big ones, like the kind that shoot 18 to 24 pound pieces of metal at large groups of dudes. Today I want to tell you all about St. Patrick's Battalion. Most of them were from Ireland, and the 1840s was not a good time for Ireland. Famine, caused largely by British mismanagement of the island, left thousands dead or malnourished, and plenty of Irish folks had all sorts of incentive to cross the Atlantic for a potentially better life in the U.S. or Canada. And when immigrants arrived in the United States, one major avenue for potential social and economic advancement for poor people was joining the armed forces. And that's still the case today, by the way. However, plenty of Irish immigrants and plenty of Irish Americans in the U.S. Army soon found that life in the armed forces wasn't much of an improvement over life in starving Ireland or on the deeply unpleasant boats that they used to cross the Atlantic. Life in the army, for many of them, was marked by bad treatment, low pay, beatings, and bigotry. Catholic servicemen were generally not allowed to practice their religion, for instance, and when they were allowed to go to church were often forced to attend Protestant masses instead of Catholic ones. Anyway, there's that. Also, this is a minor thing, not a huge deal, but it was also really common for members of the U.S. Army to refer to Irish soldiers as potato heads, which is goofy, but there it is. And uh, that slur, 
we can call it a slur, uh, extended all the way to Zachary Taylor, who was a commander at the time and would later on become president of the United States. Potato heads. Zachary Taylor, by the way, he'll show up again in this story. But the point is, war with Mexico was looming. Plenty of Irish-Americans and Irish immigrants had joined the armed forces to make a little money, do a little bit better for themselves, found that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and these immigrants, or the children of immigrants, were about to be deployed against a country that was, like them, largely Catholic. They were about to go to war against their co-religionist, Mexican folks, within an army that didn't really care for their background or culture, and also was not fighting for a great reason. Again, lots of people, like Ulysses S. Grant, knew what the deal with the Mexican-American War was at the time. And so did John Riley. John Riley was an Irish immigrant who had previously served in both the British and American Armed Forces, and in early April of 1846, with the War of Mexico almost about to start, Riley and 46 other Irishmen crossed the line and offered their services to the Mexican army just before James K. Polk got permission from Congress to declare war on Mexico. Yes, by the way, this was back when the American government actually declared war with Congress, as opposed to the president just doing that. But we don't know exactly how the Mexican army reacted when a bunch of English-speaking Irish guys showed up at their doorstep. I can only speculate here, but if I was a Mexican officer and was suddenly greeted by a few dozen dudes from the American army, the army that was about to invade me, I'd be maybe suspicious. But Riley and company were integrated into the Mexican armed forces as an artillery company, with Riley largely being the coordinator and leader of said company. It was called St. Patrick's Battalion, and they fought under a green banner emblazoned with a harp and shamrocks and the words Erin Go Bra, or Ireland Forever. And a green banner with a flag and Ireland Forever on it sounds like the most Irish flag ever. That sounds amazing. After open conflict started, Riley and the others within the Mexican army tried to recruit more Irishmen and Irish-Americans and basically anyone else from the American side who would join their cause. And they did so with all kinds of somewhat ornately worded political propaganda, like this pamphlet. It read, quote, Irishmen, listen to the words of your brothers. Hear the accents of a Catholic people. Is religion no longer the strongest of human bonds? Can you fight by the side of those who put fire to your temples in Boston and Philadelphia? Did you witness such dreadful crimes and sacrileges without making a solemn vow to our Lord? If you are Catholic, the same as we, if you follow the doctrines of our Savior, why are you seen sword in hand murdering your brethren? Why are you antagonistic to those who defend their country and your own God? Are Catholic Irishmen to be the destroyers of Catholic temples, the murderers of Catholic priests, and the founders of heretical rites in this pious nation? Come over to us. You'll be received under the laws of that truly Christian hospitality and good faith which Irish guests are entitled to expect and obtain from a Catholic nation. May Mexicans and Irishmen, united by the sacred tie of religion and benevolence, form only one people, unquote. Now, this is propaganda. It is absolutely 100% propaganda by a state attempting to undermine 
morale in its military rival. But it's also not entirely wrong. Some of the rhetoric about burning churches and murdering priests and all that might sound a little bit of a bit exaggerated, but that did happen particularly in Texas. There was one in particular well-publicized desecration of a church in Texas that was apparently a big motivator for a lot of the members of St. Patrick's Battalion to switch sides. And there's also some weird racial politics at play here. Lots of right-wing people today will talk about how, oh, the Irish people used to be discriminated against or like, and now we don't ask for anything, which that's a whole thing. Um, the Irish in the U.S. did gradually come to be seen as white people, and that is a story that I really want to talk about at another different time. It has all kinds of twists and turns. Um, but what's important right now is that, again, the differences between Catholics and Protestants are very salient to this conflict in this moment. And again, potato heads. It's not great. Uh, it's also worth noting that St. Patrick's Battalion was only mostly Irish. There was also a fair number of German immigrants as well. Also a few other types of immigrants. Uh, but it was mostly Irish and Irish-American. And again, green flag with the harp on it, Aaron Gobra. Uh, I'll also add that the Mexican government wasn't just appealing to religious identity. They were also happy to offer things like better pay than the American military and land grants to American defectors. So we're also talking about potential material reward for switching sides, not just switching sides for ideological reasons, though ideological reasons were, were definitely at play. And lest you think I'm a shill for General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, let me assure you I'm not. I have a fairly dim view of him or anyone else who pursues power as fervently as he did. But again, we're not really focusing on him right now. What's important is that this appeal worked. St. Patrick's Battalion eventually grew to be approximately 200 soldiers, and they manned heavy guns in several battles throughout the Mexican-American War. Now, this is not a military history podcast, so I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow of all the battles they were in. We'd be here all day. But one notable engagement from Los San Patricios was the Battle of Buena Vista, an intense engagement where both the American and Mexican sides uh, sustained pretty significant losses, and also they both claimed victory after two days of fighting. In this engagement, the St. Patrick's Battalion made life difficult for Zachary Taylor, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, again, a commander at the time, future president of the United States, and the San Patricios successfully captured several American cannons, and Taylor, a commander, ordered American cavalry to, quote, take the damn battery, the battery that the battalion had just absconded with. Uh, the cavalry failed in that attempt, and then the St. Patrick's Battalion ended up doing considerable damage to American artillery in turn. Uh, it did cost them. At the Battle of Buena Vista, they sustained heavy losses. They lost about a third of their total numbers. But at the end of that battle, Mexican General Francisco Mejia noted in his report that these San Patricios were as worthy of the most consummate praise because the men fought with daring bravery, unquote. And more than a few of the surviving members were awarded military honors after Buena Vista. It's probably their most significant engagement. After the Battle of Churubusco, though, the St. Patrick's Battalion was not so victorious. Uh, that battle, just outside of Mexico City, ended with about 75 to 85 of Los San Patricios getting captured. So 
roughly half of the battalion. That was in August of 1847, and by that point, the war was going very poorly for Mexico. But even as the battle and the war were going poorly, the men of St. Patrick's Battalion fought pretty fiercely. They did not have an incentive to surrender. It was not an option for them because they were defectors. Had they been captured by the Americans, they knew that they would have execution to look forward to. And indeed, after the American victory at Churubusco, the captured men were hanged as deserters. You might recall in the last episode of this podcast that we talked about how most people in the United States who commit treason are usually tried and convicted of something else because it is difficult to actually convict somebody of treason in the U.S. Uh, this was one of those incidents. Curiously, John Riley, one of the first defectors and the coordinator of the battalion, uh, was not among the hanged men. Because he'd actually defected before the war actually started, he and other early defectors were branded with a D on the cheek to signify desertion. Riley, along with many of the members of the battalion who were not hanged, and those who evaded capture, settled in Mexico following the war. Details about Riley's final years and his death are unclear, but we do know that many members of St. Patrick's Battalion made lives for themselves as immigrants in Mexico following the conflict. Today, the battalion are remembered as heroes in two countries, in Mexico and in Ireland, where they are memorialized as brave souls who, knowing that they were fighting in a war of territorial expansion, switch sides, decide to push back, and in an act of self-sacrificing solidarity, fought against empire. In the U.S., they're not really remembered at all because we don't like to talk about the Mexican-American War. But once again, those uncomfortable parts of history always had dissidents. There are always those people, like Ulysses S. Grant or like John Riley, who knew what was up at the time. They didn't need history to judge the events. They were perfectly capable of assessing and judging for themselves. Some, like Grant, wrote about it. Some, like John Riley, took slightly more direct action. Happy St. Patrick's Day. As always, we're on Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show. And the next time I talk to you, we're going back to 1812. Yes, that series still exists. I'm going to complete what I started almost a year and a pandemic ago. Uh, I'm actually sinking a fair amount of research into this, so it's not going to be next week, but you'll see it, I think, decently soon. Looking forward to that. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.